So welcome to this week's uh, online environmental humanities book talk uh, hosted by the Greenhouse at University of Stavanger. Today uh, we are joined by David Fedman, uh, Assistant Professor of History at uh, University of California, Irvine, who will be talking about his book Seats of Control, uh, Japan's Empire of Forestry in Colonial Korea, that uh, is coming out very shortly, right? Or is it out already? Another few weeks. Yeah, a few weeks, yeah. So this is a good end. So I will leave the floor to you and uh, we'll hear what you have to say about the book. Well, thank you, Finarn and Dolly, for the introduction, for uh, the invitation uh, to speak with you about my book on the eve of its uh, publication. Uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of this wonderful forum and grateful that you all have organized it. Um, but I can't in good conscience sort of cheerfully walk you through the arguments of the book uh, without first acknowledging the events in the United States of the last week, you could argue 400 years, um, that have uh, shaken me deeply. Uh, my book rather suddenly feels very small. Um, and it doesn't feel right to really engage in any self-promotion uh, without first acknowledging the injustice uh, brought upon George Floyd uh, and the incredible work that remains to address it. Um, so I want to begin with a moment of silence in his memory. I can't purport to have any real sense of what it's like to live day to day as a person of color in the United States, but I do know that we can and we must do better. And I do know that there's an important role to be played by scholars in the environmental humanities in centering justice in the stories that we tell about the environment. So use this moment to remember George Floyd or Ahmaud Arbery or Breonna Taylor or Tamir Rice or Sandra Bland or Trayvon Martin, or use it to think about how we as a scholarly community can do better, uh, how we can engage uh, more actively in telling stories that uh, are clearly at the intersection of racial and environmental justice. So there's no natural way to pivot into a discussion of my book from that. I fully acknowledge that. And I, I do sincerely hope that in our discussion and the Q&A, we can circle back to this. Quite frankly, I would 
much rather devote my time to a discussion with you all than about the nitty gritty of my book. Uh, but I do want to take the remainder of my time to, to give you a sense of what I'm up to, what, what the book is about, and, and maybe we can open things up to these bigger stakes issues in our discussion. Uh, Seeds of Control is essentially my attempt to write the write empire into Japan's environmental history and to write the Japanese empire into global environmental history. Uh, and I want to focus on the latter part of that equation in part because I think that it probably has more um, currency uh, with, with the group tuned in here, um, more analytical purchase. Um, First, a few words about the origins of the project. Um, I, I began this research squarely as a Japan scholar. I had an opportunity after my undergrad to live in Hokkaido, the northernmost island of Japan, to research the history of alpinism, of mountaineering in Japanese society. And it was in this context that I encountered just a, a barrage of commentary about Japan's national forest culture. Uh, sort of an, a, national, a national mythology uh, about um, uh, the unique relationship between Japanese people and their forests that had been nurtured over centuries. One that was manifest in everything from reverence of the cherry blossom to uh, traditions of uh, wooden handicraft industries. Um, and when I entered grad school and set out to learn the Korean language and traveled to Korea, I encountered diametrically opposed assessments of Japan's supposed national forest culture. One that was defined by its extractive nature, one that had resulted in clear cuts and sapped forests and bald mountains. And that really was my entry point into this project, just at a sort of personal level, trying to make sense of these two, uh, th this stark division, uh, these diametrically opposed, opposed characterizations uh, that uh, of Japan and its forestry traditions that I had encountered on either side of the Tsushima Strait. Uh, um, and at a basic level, that's what the book is about. It's trying to unsettle nationalist narratives uh, that have cast the colonial forestry project in binary black and white terms. Uh, one of singular extraction, uh, on, on one hand, or of benevolent regeneration on the other. Um, and the story that I tell is, I think, much more complicated than that. It's one that highlights the uneven power dynamics of colonial forest conservation in the Korean context. Now, few scholars sort of had a more direct role in shaping my thinking on these questions and priming my approach than uh, Conrad Totman, uh, a pioneer of Japanese environmental and forest history whose work, The Green Archipelago, I think is widely uh, recognized as being a, a foundational to uh, environmental history writ large. I'd be very curious to hear from this international group how familiar you are with, with Totman uh, at all. Um, but to me, Totman is both foundation and foil. Uh, it, it, it's foundational in the sense that uh, the book is trying to build on the important work he did about early modern forestry and uh, this rich tradition of silviculture and forest regeneration that had developed over centuries in response to 
waves of deforestation. I want to extend what he, I do extend what he does into the Meiji period, into the 19th and 20th centuries. But it's always struck me as, as quite odd and, and problematic that the opening premise for the Green Archipelago uh, is that um, Japan today uh, is a luxuriant, an industrial society living in a luxuriantly green realm. I'll open it to page one, and that's, that's sort of uh, his entry point into analysis. Tottman wrote these words uh, against the backdrop of Japanese corporations uh, playing a central role in clear-cutting Southeast Asian tropical forests in uh, Indonesia, the Philippines, um, Papua New Guinea, uh, a role that they continue to play as they position themselves in the global plywood trade. Uh, and so at another level, the, the book is trying to broaden our understanding of Japan's environmental history by looking beyond its island context, by trying to understand the uh, linkages it's had with uh, landscapes, territories, ecosystems beyond the archipelago, uh, and to try to sort of map more fully the environmental imprint of Japan's industrialization at home. That really is sort of the central argument of the book, that to understand the verdant hills of that we encounter in Japan to this very day, you have to look uh, at uh, its management and control of forests abroad. Uh, Japan has absolutely played an outsized role in the management and control of forests across the Pacific Rim, be they as part of the colonial empire before 1945 or in Southeast Asia uh, thereafter. Uh, so I, at, in one sense, I'm sort of mapping out the fuller, uh, the full footprint uh, ecologically of uh, Japan's 20th century transformation. And I'm doing so using the Korean Peninsula as a lens into this broader trend. Another really important uh, touchstone for me analytically is Richard Grove and his ideas of green imperialism. Uh, this is, I think, a book that's perhaps even more uh, familiar to, to this group, and it's one that has always frustrated me in its Eurocentrism. Um, imperialism comes in many hues of green, uh, I submit to you all, uh, and that's another sort of uh, argument set at, at the core of the book, that uh, Japan did not simply jettison its uh, unique tradition of forestry that Tottman uh, brings to the fore and turn to European style uh, um, scientific forestry practices. It's much more complicated uh, process than that. There are many different legacies that carry on into the 20th century that continue to shape and distinguish Japan's uh, empire of forestry across the Asia Pacific. Um, and so I, I really try to highlight two aspects of, of this. Um, uh, one is silviculture. Uh, the, the Japanese foresters that populate my book were very keen to immerse themselves in scientific forestry practices that were being taught at the Herbeswald Forestry Academy in Germany and in uh, Nancy, France. They studied alongside Gifford Pinchot and their counterparts in other colonial administrations and absorbed globally circulating ideas about uh, sustainable yield forestry, about scientific forestry, uh, about industrial development, and brought them back to Japan and put them to work. 
One thing they did not uh, embrace from Europe, however, was silviculture. They recognized that Japan's own silvicultural practices, its regenerative forestry practices, stood on their own merits. They had been tailored to the botanical and geo biogeographical realities of Japan's uh, archipelago. Uh, and so they, they clung to them quite dearly and applied them uh, in the colonies as well. Uh, so I don't see this so much as a story of convergence. That's my frustration with ideas about scientific forestry that uh, everywhere simultaneously the, these practices are converging on the ground. Uh, it's much more complicated than that. And I think Japan and its uh, forestry practices is a really illuminating case in point. Something similar could be said of ideology. Uh, the Japanese uh, government, Meiji-era ideologues, uh, forestry bureaucrats in Korea, settlers, were very quick to point to Japan's, I call it silvicultural savvy, its uh, centuries of um, regenerative forestry as something that justified their civilizing mission abroad. Uh, they used it to kind of bolster their credentials as uh, uh, colonial officials, uh, and also to distinguish themselves from uh, their Korean subjects or other colonial subjects who they marked as being profligate, as being wasteful, as being incapable of modern conservation. Uh, the Korean peninsula was routinely described as uh, a land of bald mountains and red earth in sharp contrast to the green archipelago itself. So uh, these notions of Japan's forest culture are also braided into larger debates about uh, race, climate, and assimilation in Japan's colonial uh, context. Uh, and they're also used to elevate the emperor. They're, they're very much uh, woven into uh, larger discourses about uh, emperor-centered nationalism. Uh, the, the emperor is positioned as the great forest warden of the realm. Uh, and so much of the work of conservation ideologically is sort of uh, cast as being done in service of the imperial throne. Uh, so the ideology uh, is another, I think, distinguishing factor that I try to highlight in the book. Uh, and I guess lastly, by way of conclusion, I would point you to a third line of inquiry that runs through the, the whole thing. Uh, and, and that is rethinking the nature of state power and colonial violence in uh, the Korean colonial context. Uh, one of the things that has always struck me about uh, the forestry bureaucrats, the architects of forest policy that uh, drive my account, is their inefficacy. Uh, they were they routinely grappled with geopolitical market and natural forces that were beyond their control, uh, and they they failed. They regrouped. They caved. They pivoted. Um, uh, and they often struggled to assert control over the unruly uplands of the Korean Peninsula, a space of, of stalwart resistance to colonial control, a space from which uh, insurgents like Kim Il-sung, the founding patriarch of North Korea, waged guerrilla warfare throughout the colonial period. Um, so I, I think that a, a timberline view of colonial society is really productive way to rethink and assess the limits of state power in the colonial context. Um, and in this regard, I think the book argues both with and against James Scott. Um, I have in my introduction a subheading called Seeding Like a State, S-E-E-D-I-N-G, 
where I really try to show how um, forestry in general and silviculture in particular functioned as tools of social control in colonial Korea. Uh, and I, I, I try to map out in this section the wide range of stakeholders who shaped the course of forest policy in, in the Korean context, which was not simply imposed from on high. Corporations played a huge role in this story. Uh, you cannot understand the efforts to replant, regenerate, and uh, administer the forests of the Korean Peninsula without thinking about the Japanese zaibatsu and capitalists who really took, undertook the heavy lifting of forestry. So much of it was outsourced to capital-rich firms um, and wealthy settlers. It also is a story uh, that involves a great deal of discord within the halls of the Bureau of Forestry. The agents, uh, the, the foresters themselves did not see eye to eye on forest policy. They were, uh, those based in Seoul were at odds with those uh, in the provinces. Foresters in Korea routinely were at uh, loggerheads with their counterparts in Manchuria. We like to think of empires as operating uh, in unity, uh, in harmony with one another, in lockstep towards a shared set of goals. That's not at all the case when you look at Korea-Manchuria relations. They're part of the same empire, but uh, they are routinely um, uh, vying for access to uh, resources and pursuing uh, markedly different policies to do so. So bringing some of that discord uh, to the fore, I think, is uh, important in rethinking some aspects of high modernity and, and some of the characterizations of state power that we encounter in Scott's work. And I think it's also really important in uh, response to Korean language scholarship uh, on colonial rule that all too regularly casts the colonial state as this faceless, omnipotent entity that carries out the, the, the will of the state um, and with, with an iron, iron fist. And it's not difficult to understand why Koreans would look at the colonial state this way. But when viewed from the Bureau of Forestry, it's anything but omnipotent, the, the, the colonial state, the government general, that is. Uh, and so, so the, the book is also sort of an effort to add a touch of human complexity uh, to our understanding of the nature of colonial power uh, by highlighting the, by looking to the bureaucrats themselves. I sort of uh, spend a lot of time talking about uh, the foresters, the architects of forest policy, so that we can better understand their motivations and their failures. And the, the, truly the last point I'll raise is that the book is an effort to look beyond forest regeneration as a singularly good thing. Um, and this is what's at stake when in pushing back against nationalist narratives. To recognize that the Japanese were energetic in planting trees in Korea is not to uh, apologize or dismiss the nature of colonial violence. It's to add new depth to our understanding of the nature of that violence. Uh, I make a case in the book that the planting of trees is in itself a vector for coercive force. It's a tool of expropriation and exploitation. Uh, and that's why we as scholars need to uh, recognize that the Japanese were uh, vigorous in their greenification agenda, at least until the outbreak of war in 1937. And that that greenification agenda is central to uh, how they gained access and control over 
the mountains and forests that comprise 70% of Korea's landmass. I will stop there. Um, I really do appreciate you hearing me out. Uh, I'll, I'm happy to answer any questions you have, and I, but I do genuinely hope that we can open this up to a broader reflection on environmental justice, which uh, I just think is so important now more than ever. Thank you, David. Um, and I think that's, that's where I'd like to start the conversation actually is about environmental justice. Uh, but in your case, um, because what we heard was how, you know, the Japanese foresters are trying to do something for the state without it being a, a monolith and not necessarily knowing what the right thing was always to do. Um, but I was I was wondering about then the Korean perception of that and this um, as you made a point about the the use of that conflict um, to mobilize some Koreans against uh, occupation. Um, but so where's the the injustice and the justice issues uh, about this forestry for the Koreans? Um, in your story. So how does that play out? Sure. Um, I mean, I, I think it's uh, just worth noting that in, in my brief remarks, I said barely anything about the Korean people themselves, which is almost criminal. The book is uh, not that way. I, I was sort of playing up the global dimensions of the project, uh, but Koreans are front and center. I mean, they, they are the, um, the real actors and agents that I try to, to foreground. Um, and there, there are all sorts of ways to, to um, talk about and think about environmental justice in this context. One of the, I think, most important stories and one of the most difficult stories to, that, that I tell in the book at a, at a research level uh, is of uh, Korea's Hwajonmin, um, fire field farmers, essentially Sweden culti uh, shifting cultivators. Um, these were some of the most impoverished, um, uh, small landholders, tenant farmers who were increasingly pushed off the land by uh, land redistribution uh, policies uh, and forced into the highlands. Agriculture climbed deeper and deeper into the mountains uh, as more and more uh, landowners were, were displaced um, by market forces or by forestry policies. Um, and these Min are some of the most uh, exploited bodies in Korea. Uh, they're um, uh, very much the boogeyman of deforestation in the eyes of the colonial state. They're practicing a primitive lifestyle. They're, they're sort of held, uh, pointed to as evidence of the backwardness of the Korean people. And telling their story is, has been, was incredibly challenging because despite their centrality to forestry and the concerns of foresters, their faces, their personal stories are nowhere to be found in the archive itself. Uh, they have been pushed to the margins of the historical record. Um, and, and so I, I kind of wish I, in retrospect, I had done more to tell their story at sort of a personal level. Who are these people? What drove them into the mountains? Um, and, and what, what compelled them to practice the, this shifting cultiva cultivation lifestyle in the eyes of the, of the state. Um, uh, but the, the, their mistreatment under colonial rule is profound and also 
resulted in considerable pushback from the Korean people. Uh, there, 1919 uh, is a, a major turning point in Korean history. It's the March 1st uprising, this massive mobilization. Millions of Koreans took to the streets to protest the heavy-handedness of colonial rule. And it also ushered in profound changes in forest policy as well that I, I address it in the book. In the wake of the March 1st movement, uh, foresters had to tread more lightly. Um, uh, they couldn't deal in the overt uh, expropriation of, of land that they had previously. And that's not to say that they didn't engage, they found more subtle ways to, to, to do so. Uh, but all of a sudden, a spotlight was shined on the mistreatment of the, these firefield farmers um, and uh, how policies, which on their face are benevolent, uh, the, the reclaiming and regeneration of Korea's bald mountains, uh, are themselves ultimately resulting in greater hardship uh, and displacement and suffering of the Korean people. So trying to look beyond the rhetoric of um, green equals good, uh, I think is, is one way that, that we can get at this. And in the conclusion of the book, I, I make a case for why we need to put those shifting cultivators in Korea in the same analytical framework as tenant farmers in Kalimantan today who have similarly been displaced by Japanese corporations uh, engaged in uh, palm oil plantations and plywood processing. Uh, there's a larger story to be told about the role of the state corporations uh, and their local proxies in, uh, Japanese uh, proxies in uh, pushing uh, local residents off the land. Great answer. Um, Kenny, you have a question. Yes, uh, thank you very much uh, for the talk. As someone who does uh, Asian environmental history as well, I, I, I really appreciated it. And I try and be, um, engage a lot with other Japanese environmental history. Uh, you, you asked how um, familiar folks were with that. And as far as I'm concerned, Japanese environmental history as a field is one of the cutting edge um, uh, parts of environmental history. Um, I, I was uh, curious if you, you touched a bit on it, but I was curious if you could speak a little bit more on, as to the, the, the place of um, where Korean uh, forestry uh, history uh, under Imperial Japan fits in with other areas of the Japanese empire's forestry history. You mentioned Manchuria, which is, uh, I'm a bit more familiar with, but I'm curious, like, did they take what they used in colonial Hokkaido uh, after they conquered it uh, and imported it to Korea? Did they use what they learned in Korea in Manchuria or not? Uh, or other parts of the Japanese yeah. empire? Um, uh, so I was wondering if you could expand a bit on that. Thank you very much. Sure. Yeah, of course. Um, well, a amen about Japanese environmental history being on the cutting edge. Huh? Um, uh, absolutely, the, the, the book uh, really tries to map out the resource flows, both between uh, Japan and Korea, but uh, across the empire more, more generally. And again, while it is a case study of Korea, I make a number of arguments about the nature of the empire as a whole. Uh, Man Korea Manchuria is hugely important, especially during the war. So I am tracking the flow of Korean forest resources in particular 
uh, to their endpoint, uh, which is either uh, Japan or from 1937 onwards into Korea. Uh, but something similar could be said of Taiwan and of Karafuto, um, today's Sakhalin, north of, of Hokkaido. Um, uh, there's so much work remains to be done just in better understanding the commodity chains that grew in tandem with Japan's uh, empire. Um, and so I, I reveal one set of resource flows, but um, a, a very different portrait would emerge if you were writing the story of forestry in Taiwan. Um, so one of the challenges for me in this book has been to recognize that uh, there's considerable variation uh, within Japan's empire of forestry for obvious reasons. The way forestry worked in Manchuria is different than it worked in tropical Taiwan by virtue, by dint of geography. Um, and, and so um, uh, I'm, I am tr trying to place them, place these forcers into sort of a unified network and, and framework because they were in conversation with one another. And often forestry bureaucrats circulated uh, throughout the empire. They did a stint in Taiwan, then back to Japan and then to Korea. Uh, many of them cut their teeth in Hokkaido, uh, an important staging ground for settler colonialism, um, especially northward. Um, and so the, these are all part things that unify what I call Japan's empire of, of forestry. Uh, but it, it's absurd to say, to, to think that uh, the way forestry unfolded in Korea um, is all that comparable to Taiwan or after 1942, Indonesia, the Philippines, and, and so on. Um, uh, but I think it's, it's incredibly important that we think more broadly um, uh, along these lines. That th this story isn't just uh, about uh, Korea, in large part because Korea's resources were being harvested and put to use beyond the boundaries of, of Korea. Um, again, Manchuria is hugely important in this regard. Uh, and I, I would just add uh, that when we look beyond the Korean peninsula itself, we can better appreciate uh, the nature of power and um, forest management um, and the conflicts that it um, engendered. Uh, one of the most surprising stories that emerged out of the archive for me was this uh, entrenched friction between woodsmen uh, in Shinwiju uh, on the Korean side of the Yalu River and Andong on the Manchurian side of the river. They shared the same river, they shared the same uh, forest repository, the, the forests uh, surrounding Mount Pekdu, the Kaima Plateau, uh, and yet they were constantly at odds with one another. They were battling over everything from access to the river's uh, routes to float timber, tariff policies back in the metropole, um, the course of the war. So uh, I, one of the most surprising stories to me as a researcher was just uh, trying to understand the intra-imperial tension uh, that we very seldom consider in, in, in thinking about empire as a whole. I think that's really important to break down that empire isn't one thing, right? It's not really just one big monolith, but instead has all of these separate functions. And, and I think it's interesting to think about the ways in which individuals move through that empire in your story and um, 
how they they go into different roles and in different places and they have to adjust but yet they come with an idea of of the empire and what you're supposed to do to do japanese forestry um and so there is that tension and i think that's really fascinating um chris you have a question i think you may need to press your yeah yep you can hear me yes yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is such a, a fascinating project. I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on this book. Um, I should say that I'm an Americanist who started out my sort of intellectual career in East Asia, looking at sort of the Japan-Korea early part of the colonial relationship. So this is just fascinating. Um, also, just a sort of brief comment about forestry from a U.S. perspective that I think um, at least some people might be familiar with that you know, forestry, the idea that forestry is entwined with colonialism is is not um, a surprise to many Americanists, right? Um, I work on indigenous history, so it's extraordinarily uh, central to my field for sure, but I think at least some people are, are more and more aware of the fact that, you know, forestry was not necessarily environmentalism per se, um, or green. Um, and if I can be a, a little bit um, sort of blunt in it, just a few book recommendations and, you know, to get the Americanist. Um, I can't find my copy of Carolyn Finney's book. This is maybe the most important book uh, to read right now when thinking about Black Americans and environment and environmentalism. So this is Carolyn Finney, F-I-N-N-E-Y, Black Faces, White Spaces. Um, extraordinarily relevant book. I think I've actually mentioned it before, um, and it's exactly what we're seeing going on right now. Um, look up things like the hashtag Black in Nature as well. Um, just a, a few other ones. Here's Laurent Savoy. Is this backwards? Um, I don't know. No, how it's correct. Look. It's correct. Yeah. Okay. Lord's Lord's voice trace. Um, she's also working on another book. Robin Wall Kimmer's braided sweet grass. Um, Elizabeth Hoover's uh, rivers in us and sort of a classic of the field. Uh, Mark David Spence discussing the wilderness. Right. So there's still a lot more work on the U.S. Um, to be done on the entanglements of forestry and colonialism, but it is absolutely clearly there. So um, I'm glad this is sort of a project maybe that can be done comparing those kinds of things. Um, okay. Uh, I think I had a, a question about the, the Korean perspective too. Um, uh, I actually have a few questions. I'll try and be real quick. But um, so were there ever instances of Korean um, resistance to imperial forestry as a sort of anti-colonial move? Um, as, this, as a form of anti-colonial resistance during the occupation. Um, uh, so that's a histor more historical question, more present day question about um, memorialization and landscapes of memory in Korea today. I mean, and you talk about these kind of national stories. So I wonder if how, how um, stories of environments, especially sort of wilderness places like national parks and other sort of nature, spots um, are remembered by Koreans today? And is that a sort of um, nail on the head, simplistic, narrow, you know, this is colonial violence, et cetera, or do they engage with these more complex histories? Um, and I guess the last one I wanted to, um, th this idea of Topman, you know, framing uh, Japan as this kind of green paradise, immediately I thought of a book by Alex Kerr, or Kerr, excuse me, um, 
called Lost Japan. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I mean, uh, this is someone, an American, I believe, who's lived in Japan most of his life now, um, <laughs> who wrote this book decrying the sort of losing of traditional Japan, including via things like the concretization of Japan. Everywhere you look, urban and rural Japan, there's this concrete uh, on the sides of every riverbed. Uh, and so it's interesting that Topman is kind of invoking this green Japan at the one hand, and then you've got this popular writer saying, oh my gosh, we're destroying sort of traditional nature and the like. I mean, it, and I think their books are actually published around the same time. So how is Topman missing this? Or, or, or is, is Kerr kind of being just cranky? Sorry, that was a lot. Thank you very much. Oh, uh, <laughs> um, I think I'm going to go backwards uh, with your with the order of your questions. Um, I, I, I guess in Tottenham's defense, and don't get me wrong, like the, the Green Archipelago is an incredibly rich and Im important study. I just I think that there's uh, other ways to look at it. But, but I think it's rooted in the fact that it's fundamentally a study of early modern Japan. Um, I think the framing, the, those first few pages are quite problematic, but once he gets into Tokugawa forestry, uh, I, I'm willing to set aside my, my criticisms. Um, but yeah, that's a really, I think, important observation, uh, that there is tension among uh, American uh, scholars writing around the, uh, the same time. The question of landscapes of memory is such an interesting one. It's such an important one. It, 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 and it also shaped my own research process. Um, I don't want to spoil the intro to the book because I want you all to buy it. Um, but uh, uh, another defining moment for me w came while hiking in the mountains of Korea uh, and discovering on, I think on three different occasions, I discovered work crews of Korean retirees uprooting trees that they associated with uh, as being the residue of colonial rule. Uh, and there are two trees in particular that merit scrutiny in this regard. Uh, one is uh, acacia, Nisei acacia in Japanese, or similar in, in Korean, actually, um, which was planted uh, first introduced by the colonial state uh, as part of erosion control measures. And so this, it is an invasive species in the truest sense in the Korean context. It's uh, a, a tree that uh, has crowded out the soil, planted by the the, um, uh, the Japanese, and then it's crowded out the soil and left no room for sort of uh, in indigenous uh, native uh, plants. Um, and so the job of these work crews was to remove the residue of colonial uh, rule. The reality uh, is that uh, uh, acacia was planted in huge numbers by Pak Chung-hee uh, and Koreans in the post-colonial period as part of their own greenification efforts. A lot of the acacia that stands today uh, is actually the direct result of efforts by the South Korean government in the 1960s and 70s to reclaim mountains after um, uh, the aftermath of the Pacific Asia-Pacific War and especially the Korean War, uh, which laid waste to so much of, of the landscape. So there's no small measure of irony here in, in uh, witnessing these crews associated singularly with colonial rule when actually the Korean government uh, uh, planted it just as extensively. So trying to understand the, the legacies as they're manifest today is, is important and quite challenging and is an argument that's not going to make me a lot of friends in South Korea. Um, the other tree uh, that I think continues to fascinate me and merits scrutiny in this regard is the cherry blossom. 
Cherry blossoms, the Yoshino cherry blossom was planted, introduced by settlers as part of an effort to be supposedly beautify the Korean landscape and inculcate Korean subjects with Japanese notions of forest love, Irene, Chiso, forest love ideology. Um, it was part of their assimilation of the environmental sensibilities of the Korean people. Um, and cherry blossom viewing became a national pastime in Korea under colonial rule. It was hugely popular. Uh, and cherry blossoms uh, emerged in parks, along streets, in squares, across the, the uh, peninsula. Well, uh, one of the first things that Koreans did um, upon, on August 15, 1945, uh, the day of Japan's surrender, was smash Shinto shrines and cut down cherry blossom trees. Uh, I've encountered multiple anecdotes uh, and some documents that reveal sort of uh, Koreans uh, cathartically celebrating liberation by, by felling the, these cherry blossom trees. And yet the cherry blossom and cherry blossom viewing uh, remains a national pastime in, in Korea today. A lot of communities replaced the trees planted by Japan with varietals native to the Korean peninsula. Um, but, but still the sort of the traces of colonial forestry linger on in the, the, the cherry blossom as sort of a symbol of Japan and uh, its imperial forestry practices. Uh, and so there's uh, a process of sort of indigenizing uh, Korea's own uh, greenification projects and forest culture uh, that unfolds in the post-colonial context that, that I also try to address in the book. Uh, but it's quite quite challenging. I mean, I, I most Koreans today, um, well, I, who, am, who am I to, to, to speak for them? But uh, some Korean friends of mine don't think twice about the cherry blossom uh, as being in any way connected with colonial rule, uh, but others do. There's instances of the South Korean government, was it under Lee Myung-bak uh, in the uh, early 2000s, uh, felling the cherry trees in an act of, uh, when, when Japanese-Korean relations go south, uh, uh, trees are one of the things that uh, Koreans continue to kind of take their ire out on. Um, and so there are, there are, these are examples of what I in the book call Sylvan nationalism that continue to um, shape and often upset uh, geopolitical ties in East Asia to this day. Tina, you had a question. Come down and unmute you. You may need to actually press. Yeah, okay. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Great. Good morning from Vancouver. Um, Good morning. I was, I'm definitely going to buy the book. I, I've uh, found uh, James Scott's work also quite generative and I wanted to build a bit on Dolly's question and some of the other questions that have been raised and just ask you to talk a bit more specifically about, about local knowledge. So it's clear that, um, that you've got these forestry experts, the silvicultural knowledge that could be seen as part of a process of rationalization, seeing like a state or seeding like a state, which I quite love that phrase. But I wanted to know a bit more about Koreans' local knowledge about the forest and instances where um, that intersected with and di diverged from the, um, the kind of uh, scientific forestry that, that, yeah. that you started out talking about. 
And secondly, um, and this is just a kind of aside, um, given what you said about the limits of imperial control, uh, I wondered if you'd also found Scott's book afterwards, The Art of Not Being Governed, useful. Because, so he does the state power thing and seeing like a state, but then in The Art of Not Being Governed, he does talk very much about local people and and um, kind of flying under the radar uh, and, yeah. and how uh, their own projects uh, continue, local projects. Anyway, local knowledge. Um, great questions, thank you. Um, and uh, do I have a chapter for you, Tina? Um, the, one of the chapters of the book takes on this question head on and it's a really my, a chapter about forest science in the colonial context. Um, in, and it's a story that cannot be told without writing Korean scientists into the, 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 the story, uh, into uh, the institutions of Japan's empire of forestry. In this sense, it, it reveals uh, an aspect of colonial collaboration that scholars of Korea uh, have seldom examined. Collaboration is a, a, a huge issue that looms large in Korean society to this day. Uh, and um, there's a, a really important collaborative dynamic that emerges between Japanese foresters and forest scientists and their Korean counterparts who are, uh, play an instrumental role in uh, allowing Japanese uh, foresters, um, bureaucrats to calibrate forestry policies to the Korean context. The, the Japanese uh, woodsmen recognize that they need to understand the Korean landscape before they cement policy, before they decide what should be planted where, when, and how. Uh, they undertake a, a massive uh, um, sort of program of uh, scientific experimentation. Uh, they know better than to simply import uh, flora from Japan although some uh, recommend that early on. And it's in this context that Koreans are instrumental to the story. Uh, they translate botanical treatises uh, from the Choson period for their Japanese uh, counterparts. Uh, they collect specimen uh, as, as sort of, uh, as far as field work goes, they uh, are key to interfacing with uh, uh, upland farming communities to better understand where they can find plants that the Japanese might experiment or seeds that the Japanese might uh, experiment with. And so I um, have a chapter where I really follow two Koreans um, through the institutions of Japanese forestry science uh, to understand their collaborative dynamic with, with uh, Japanese forestry bureaucrats, <coughs> excuse me, uh, but also to understand what the, the transculturation of knowledge, uh, which uh, is absolutely hybrid. The, the, the Japanese do not take their own approaches and uh, up, apply them unilaterally. They adopt uh, and adapt uh, local traditions of uh, forestry, of, of, of silviculture in particular. Um, and that would have been impossible without people like Hyun Shingu um, and Chong Taehyun who uh, also, not, not coincidentally, emerge in the post-colonial period as um, the chief architects of Korea's greenification under Park Chung-hee. 
so a lot of the individuals who are front and center in the greening of Korea uh, post-1945 uh, emerged out of colonial scientific institutions. Uh, and that's a legacy of colonial rule that is important, but is very seldom discussed, is quite taboo to suggest that there's any sort of continuity in, in uh, forestry science or administration on either side of 1945. But if you track these scientists themselves, uh, uh, there's no denying uh, that. And this isn't to suggest that Korea's own achievements in reforesting, South Korea, I should say, uh, are due to colonial rule. It's so much more complicated than that. But we can't ignore the continuities in environmental governance that extends, that, that transcends 1945. To your second question um, uh, about um, the art of not being governed, absolutely, uh, there, there's, uh, it, it applies. And it especially applies when we begin to think about Northern Korea. Notice that I don't say North Korea. Uh, the peninsula wasn't divided in, at, at this time. But Northern Korea, its uplands were absolutely a staging ground for communities that resisted colonial control. Um, it was a space of refuge for Hwajonmin, for firefield farmers, those who didn't want to practice state-imposed uh, agriculture um, or market, uh, state-sanctioned market activities. Um, they all found refuge in the, the, these upland areas and were relatively unperturbed, many of them. Uh, despite the heavy-handedness of colonial rule and the strength of the state, these firefield communities persist through the entirety of the colonial period. They do not, the, the Japanese do not stamp them out or control them. And these same areas are also staging grounds for active insurgency. Kim Il-sung and many others are routinely moving uh, across and along the Yalu River, depending on the season, um, uh, to stage, uh, and especially after 1931, when Japan begins to expand into Manchuria, um, to stage resistance, to, to stage guerrilla war that, that uh, intensifies uh, over the 1930s into the 1940s. Uh, so, these, if ever there were spaces recalcitrant, recalcitrant to colonial control, it's those under the jurisdiction of the Bureau of Forestry. And that's why I think it's such a, a rich site of analysis. So you mentioned um, Sweden agriculture and um, Anders had a, had a question about forestry management um, compared to other types of management like agricultural management in general during the imperial period. And if we did a study of agriculture, um, would we, do you think we would see the same patterns that you found um, in forestry? Uh, thank you, Anders, for the, for the question. Um, they are inextricably linked forestry and agriculture, to the point where in 1936, the Bureau of Forestry, um, the Sanrin Kyoku becomes the Norin Kyoku, literally the Bureau of Agriculture and Forestry. They are gathered under the same uh, institutional uh, bureaucratic umbrella. Um, and it's in large part because the initiatives of agricultural and agrarian reform are tied in so many different ways to the initiatives of, of forestry. One that I pay particular attention to in the book is fuel and fuel collection. Um, one of the primary concerns of foresters is the 
uh, domestic combustion of fuel and the way that it's gathered from the forest. In particular, uh, the raking of grass and detritus from the forest floor and its combustion in ondo, the heated floors conventional to Korean homes. Uh, so um, foresters, despite having no real training, no real background in this, uh, become uh, students of the uh, Korean architecture and uh, home economics uh, as they target uh, farming households, which they see as ground zero of deforestation. If forests are to be preserved long term, if they are to be able to implement their regenerative forestry agenda and, and their broader uh, timber and, and hold up the timber industry more generally, they need to gain control over the fuel combustion patterns of the domestic sphere. Uh, and so from the 1930s into the wartime, you also see the increasing kind of creep, reach of foresters into the homes of Korean farmers um, who are mandating uh, what is burned, uh, in what quantities, uh, and uh, of and all, all sorts of other agricultural practices. This is to say nothing of irrigation. Uh, irrigation is obviously tied to uh, the forestry work, erosion control in particular. Uh, floods are a perennial problem in Korea to this very day. Um, and, and so there's a, one of the kind of underlying forces driving this regenerative forestry uh, project in, in Korea is uh, a sense of cascading environmental degradation that if the Japanese do not uh, are, are not vigorous in planting trees and implementing massive erosion control projects that is going to spoil agricultural production down the line and this isn't just about Korean uh, production uh, here it's worth noting that so much of the rice produced by Koreans is actually being shipped back to the Japanese metropole to offset domestic scarcity in Japan uh, so there are concerns with resourcing not just Korea itself, but uh, agricultural pro productivity as it uh, um, held up um, demand uh, back at home as, as well. A long-winded answer and maybe a superficial answer to, a, I think, a really important question. All right, so time flies. We need to wrap up soon. But I had one question I wanted to ask. Uh, hopefully I can ask it briefly and you can answer it equally briefly. We'll see. Um, so, so one of the things this made me uh, think of and is the, the connection between the nation state uh, with national identity uh, and nature. Uh, so there's been quite a lot of, of scholarship on that uh, recently. So, but I, I haven't personally read much on, on colonialism uh, and how that plays out. Because, I mean, the way you presented it, so nation, Japanese national identity and forests are very like, closely connected, right? Uh, and then what happens... Because you also talked about then the, uh, how science comes into this, uh, that sometimes you also talk about different uh, ways of managing forests than traditional ones. But is there a difference then between how foresters operate then in uh, the colonies versus in Japan? So Japanese forests can be preserved as, in a way, authentic, whereas they can experiment more elsewhere. Do you see that? Yes. Um... I see it most kind of profoundly in the per Japanese perceptions of Korean folk culture. So at the, there's this fundamental tension in Japan's rhetoric about 
Koreans and their relationship with their forests. Whereas back at home, uh, ethnographers like Yanagita Kunio are celebrating Japan's forest culture and the fact that there are deities and animistic spirits in, in everything. Um, uh, in Korea, they are denigrating those very ideas. Uh, they're, they're, they're saying that, oh, well, Koreans have all of these antiquated, outmoded ideas of shamanism. They attribute meaning and, and have rites and rituals to particular spirit trees. And this is a, precisely why the um, benevolent, uh, enlightened Japanese forester needs to step in to um, reform their backwards ecological sensibilities. Uh, and uh, it, it, it's it's just rife with contradiction that that sort of of, of thinking, and it just goes to show that uh, um, there are of course uh, ulterior motives and power dynamics at work, and uh, nationalism is uh, a hell of a drug, I suppose. Maybe that's my concluding <laughs> statement. Um, yeah. Good. Thank you so much. Um, so I just can I just can I just end by saying that uh, that my words still feel hollow and and small, uh, and I just want to leave on a word of uh, calling to to action. Uh, so if if you all can spare some time, even if you're not in the U.S., to think about race and environment and how you can do your part. Uh, that's how I'm going to spend my day, um, and I, I just think it's imperative that we build a, a community of people thinking along those terms. Yeah, I mean, I agree. It's, uh, it's a very important reminder uh, and should definitely be on our uh, mind nowadays. And hopefully we can also come back to this in, in future talks. So, uh, but I'd just like to thank everyone for, for coming today with this uh, presentation by David Fedman on his book, Seeds of Control. Uh, we'll have uh, uh, more talks to come uh, in the next two weeks, and then we will have a, a summer break. So thank you all. Thank you.